I want to take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus 3. And as you do that, let me ask the Lord to give us help as we look at another Old Testament sacrifice. This will be the offering of peace, the peace offering they called it. Tremendous link to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll look at this chapter 3 together. Here, Father, we thank you for this time together in the Word. We are grateful for the chance to gather, Lord, as the storm rolls by our building out here and we all rush in to uh, sing praises to you and then uh, look into your word, uh, this, this infallible, all-sufficient, profitable, authoritative word of God for our lives, Lord. Oh, life is good, Lord, when we think about that. We have that relationship with you. And though there are struggles, there's illnesses, there's financial problems, there are even relational problems at times, Lord. You are a good God to us, and you're good to us, and we love you. I pray that tonight we'll be stirred uh, by your truth, and it'll grip us and cause us to love you more. Father, I do pray for those who are at home, probably many watching now as I speak, that are not well, Lord. They're struggling with one form or another of illness, Lord, and we pray that you would uh, touch their body. We pray you would heal them, give them hope in you, Lord, and we pray they would be able to be returned to us soon, Lord. Father, I do also want to thank you for so many who fill in for those who are sick, Lord, whether it is in sound ministry or uh, children's ministry or wherever it may be, Lord, thank you for those who volunteer to help. We're grateful for this time together, Lord. Now, may you talk to us through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the greatest gift that a believer could ever have would be peace with God, wouldn't it? Can you imagine not having peace with God? Well, most of them, well, all of us had one time or another, even maybe we were saved at young ages, there was a time where we were not at peace with God. I've often said the opposite of peace is war. <laughs> That's a good word. Uh, yeah, there was a long book written on that. Uh, um, but but uh, one of, a great theologian once said, said, when we study the Bible, we realize there is a long, cold, dark war against God. And only he can bring peace to that war. And, and that's what we will have experienced. As Christians, we've experienced peace with God. Isn't that an amazing thing? I have peace with an almighty God. I'm not at war with him. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you too are not at war. You know, reading through your Bible is an excellent thing to do. I, I, it's my, always been my goal. I don't push this on anybody, but I, for my own life and my ministry, I love to read through the Bible once a year. I love reading the Old Testament. That's why I love teaching at it as well. Because I think it shows it's all pointing forward to Christ. But when we read the Old Testament, particularly in the Old Testament, we see a strong view of the wrath of God, don't we? It is not hard to read through, read through the major prophets or the minor prophets. Or even the promises in the law of what God is going to do when man rejects him. But some of the minor prophets, as you study them, it is just scary to see what God says I will do to the wicked to those who reject me. You get farther into the New Testament, and we don't see um, quite the language of the wrath of God until you get to the book of Revelation. As you turn to the book of Revelation, you begin to be, realize that this Old Testament narrative, this Old Testament language begins to come back out as God looks at the coming of the end. First five chapters speak of his judgment on churches at times who have turned away from him, the seven churches there. And, but then there's a great scene of God and the Lamb on the throne and, and all men worshiping and every knee bowing before him. But then as you turn the corner and you start in chapter 6, you start to see the judgments of God poured out onto the earth. And there's bold judgments and seal judgments and trust judgments. And, and one, of the, one of the places in there, in, in beginning of chapter 6, Verse 4 in Revelation, it says this, And I saw another, a red horse went out. And listen to this, And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. God grants this, this angel, this, this one who brings the judgment of God, the ability to take peace from the earth. They think things are unpeaceful now. They haven't seen anything. When the king of kings removes peace from the earth. And all man does exactly what his intent in his heart to do towards one another. We will return to the days prior to Noah's flood. 
And so we see the wrath of God in the Bible. But as Christians, think about this. We should not fear the wrath of God when it comes to eternal judgment. Now certainly, listen, the Bible says that he disciplines the ones he loves. I like that. Hebrews chapter 12, right? He disciplines Scott. When Scott gets out of line, it's not good for Scott not to walk with God. And so our loving Father moves me back in line. He disciplines me to have me walk with Him. That's a good thing, because He disciplines the ones He loves, right? So we're not talking about discipline here. Here I've been speaking about the wrath of God. It's on those who don't know Him, those who don't love Him. And it's a fearful thing to fall under the wrath of God. But our, our worship, your worship tonight as you sing to the Lord, as you hear the Word taught, as you worship privately and both publicly or corporately like we've done tonight, your worship is an acknowledgement of the peace of God that you have. Do you realize that? When you sing such songs as we've sang, Be Thou My Vision, In other words, be everything to me, all that my desires, all my pathways, all that I am going, where I'm going, be that to me, God. You are saying, I am at peace with you. I put my life in your hands. See, worship for us is much like this peace offering that we're going to look at today. Yes, it's Old Testament. Yes, there's blood and there's sacrifices and all that. And we'll look briefly at that. But now on this side of the cross, those of us who have received the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ through salvation, we now offer this peace sacrifice to the Lord. Every time we gather, every time we sing, every time you sit and put your Bible on your lap in the mornings or evenings and read of God and believe in God and know what he believed, he did what he said he did and he is who he said he is, you offer this beautiful peace offering to God. And that's what this is about. This chapter 3 here of Leviticus is about a peace offering given to God. So let me give you just three thoughts tonight. First one, we'll just focus in on the peace offering. And then we're going to turn to how that's fulfilled in Christ and fulfilled in our lives. Number one, the sacrifice and offering that acknowledge a peace with God. There's a sacrifice in the Old Testament here and an offering that acknowledged a peace with God. Let me just read the first five verses, and then I'll explain the rest of them as we go along in here. Chapter 3 of Leviticus, verse 1, reads this way. Now, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he is going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect or blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the offering and slay it at the door of the tent of the meeting, And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood around the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is in on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobes of the liver, which which he shall remove with the kidneys. And then Aaron's son shall offer it up in a smoke on the altar of burnt offering, which is on the wood that is on the fire, and it is an offering by fire of a smooth aroma, excuse me, soothing aroma to the Lord. Now, again, I want to make very clear that this offering, this particular peace offering, was not an offering to make peace with God. It was an offering saying we enjoy our peace with God. It's a big difference here. There are offerings we're going to see for sin offerings and burnt offerings and so forth like that. But this is an offering making a statement by the worshiper here in the Old Testament that I acknowledge God because of what you have done that I am at peace with you. This was an offering of worship. And though it's very foreign to us, we're... We in the New Testament age and 21st century are not accustomed to lambs or bulls or goats being sacrificed and fat taken out of their intros and offered to God. It seems uh, somewhat foreign to, I imagine, uh, to most of us. But for them, this is the way God wanted them come. Remember, this is all representing something that is coming, right? This is all rep- representing a lamb that will be the final lamb, the final blood sacrifice, the final offering to God. It's all pointing forward to that. So this is an offering saying, God, we enjoy peace with you. 
Now just think about that for a moment. They were in the land of Egypt for 400 years. At least 250 to 270 of those years, they were in full slavery. And God brought them out. He wiped their enemies out. He's fed them every day except on the Sabbath with bread from heaven. He's given them meat. He's protected them from their enemies. He has rescued them from slavery and brought them into safety. That's what he does with us, right? So all of this Old Testament imagery is a display of our own salvation. He rescued us out of slavery of sin, out of, out of the family of Satan, one who works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2. And so we see this as this is an offering as, hey, Lord, thank you that we're at peace with you. It's a free will offering. There, there, certainly there were times to do this, but it could be done at any time. At any time, the worshiper could go to the tabernacle and go to the priest there at the gate, at the temple doorway there, and say, I would like to worship my God that I'm at peace with him and offer a lamb or a goat, male or female. Now, the burnt offering of chapter 1 and the sin offering of chapter 4, these were given to gain peace. We're going to see that next week as we get into chapter 4. That offering was something that was given as a substitutionary death to cover the sins of the individual person of the worshiper. There's a clear difference between these. Now, one of the differences in the offerings, you could see that it could be either male or female animal here. So right there, that gets our attention, doesn't it? Well, he goes, well, it could be female. Never in any of the sacrificial offerings that are done for sin, to cover sin, to atone, for sin, is it ever female? It always is a male, because of course that's recognizing and looking forward. And what that helps us understand is, is this was take your desired animal, it still needs to be unblemished, and take what you think is best to bring to me, to, to thank me for the offering that you're giving. It was God showing mercy and grace to them to be able to bring from either sex of the animal. It also shows that, that um, the Bible is not to- totally gender-weighted um, towards the male end of it. it. It teaches us that there's an equality before God. Here, the sacrifice shows there's an equality of the worshiper. It could be male or female brought before God. Because this was not, this particular sacrifice was not wholly set on representing the Lord Jesus Christ. It was, the, it was an, a sacrifice that represent the worship of one who could be at peace with God. And of course, we do find our fulfillment in Jesus that way. Now, the animal must still be without defect or blemish, right? You see that there as we read. And this was to remind the worshiper that God deserves the best from the worshiper. And I thought about this as I was working on this and finishing this today, I thought, boy, Lord, how often do we come and we don't bring our best? I know our online ministry is important, and there's a lot of people who, even without COVID or anything else, can't get here. Um, but so many of us have talked about watching services at home. I actually ended up doing that for a few Sundays, as you know, I was sick. It's not the same. And one of the things I found, I said, you know, it's, it's easy not to give your best when you're not with the brothers and sisters. And that's not, that's not some kind of weird peer pressure or something like that. It's because God knows, as Jason read to us today, that gathering rubs off on us. Gathering pushes me. It causes me to do deeds that are glorifying to God and good for others. It, it's so good to be together. And, and one of the things I like about this is I've studied this. I thought, Lord, you deserve their best. You deserve my full attention as I watch as I listen, as I sing, as I participate. You deserve that, Lord. And the peace offering's all about that. The peace offering's, Lord, you, here's my best. Because you made me at peace with you. See, they knew to be at odds with God was really bad. They watched their enemies wash up on the shore of the Red Sea to them. They knew the power of God. And see, this caused them to want to bring their best. And this was a reminder, bring your best to me. Just imagine if we were a church on Sunday mornings, Wednesdays. Every time we gathered, every one of us brought our best. We brought our hearts ready to worship. 
That means we repented of sin before we got here. If we had problems with a spouse or a loved one or a member in the church, we, we dealt with them and we left that offering aside and we, we, we went to God and we went to them and we worked that out. Just imagine what that would be like if every one of us walked in here in such right reframe with God. Oh, there would be such sweet worship. And I trust many of us strive to do that. I trust you come in. I think this is why you hear me handle communion in the Lord's table sometimes a little different. I don't think the table is built for penance. Uh, one of the best things you can do when we know we're having the Lord's table is be right with the Lord at home and come and worship. Offer your worship as a beautiful peace offering to God. Well, throughout the Old Testament, we see this offering given. It's, it's given in many different places and often in extraordinary worship to the Lord. Probably the greatest animal peace offering sacrifice that we ever have seen is King Solomon. He actually outdid his father. Listen to this. In 1 Kings chapter 8, this is where Solomon is dedicating the temple. Remember, he built the temple that his father could not. David wanted to build it, but God said, no, you're a man of bloodshed. Um, I'm not going to have you build that, but set everything aside for your son to build it. Well, the day came when Solomon was to build that temple, and oh, was that a grand temple. There's probably been nothing like it ever since. And Solomon gives a prayer. It's worth reading. Again, this is 1 Kings 8. Go back and read the prayer of dedication that Solomon gives. Whoa. Absolutely full of adoration and glory to God as he gives that. At the end of that, King Solomon decides to give a peace offering to God. Now listen to what he does. Solomon, verse 63, offers for the sacrifice of peace offering. He offered to the Lord 22,000 oxen. Can you imagine how... I, uh, I, in my days, I ran thousands of cattle, head of cattle. I mean, I'd have a ranch that would have two or 3,000 head of cattle that I'd be in charge of. That's a lot of cows. If you've ever started just counting them, they add up pretty quickly. And you're moving them down a highway. There's a big mess behind them. It's, it's quite a scene. Can you imagine in one day the slaughter of 22,000 oxen? The blood alone equals about five gallons per animal. Can you imagine all what that took? The Bible says that Solomon offered 2,000 oxen. And you go, wow, that's a lot. And then you know what the next number is? 120,000 sheep. This, this is not an offering to forgive us of our sins as a nation. This is an offering strictly to God that you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of who you are. There is no God beside you. There was no God like you. And you are worthy of our worship and our offering. And they laid it out. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. And the Bible says, so the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord in just tremendous worship. That's giving, not to gain some kind of forgiveness of sin. That's giving because you honor this God who deserves it. The next probably biggest one that we see after that, King David gave several that were large as well. But later, King Hezekiah, as he has um, risen to, to be king of Judah after some pretty bad kings that he succeeds from, is in succession from, they, they had really uh, destroyed the temple, sold off much of its goods. Hezekiah comes along, and he's a man of God, and his prayers are worth reading as well as he reaches out to God in, in hope and trust in him. But he comes along, and he restores the temple, and he returns the sacrifices commanded by God. And the Bible says that his sacrifice, his his sacrifice of a peace offering was grand as, grand as well. This comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 24 through 27. For Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had contributed to the assembly. Him himself, the king, gave this. He gave a thousand bulls and 7,000 sheep of his own for this peace offering, this offering of worship before God. And the princesses had contributed to the to the assembly, they gave a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And a large number of priests consecrated themselves, and all the assembly of Judah rejoiced 
with the priests and the Levites and all the assembly that came from Israel, both sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those living in Judah. Now listen to this. And so there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like it in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then the Levitical priest arose and blessed the people, and the voice was heard, and their prayers came to his holy dwelling place in heaven. That's pretty cool. Did you ever think about the peace offering, how worshipful this thing was? They made a racket so loud that God heard their prayers in heaven as they worshiped God and thanked him. Great men are arisen every once in a while, like King Solomon and King Hezekiah, to bring God's people back to worship. And this is what we see. There's another aspect of the peace offering, um, was that they were to bring offering that was, uh, they were to lay their hands on its head. Notice that in verse 2. And this, we see this often, even in the atoning sacrifices, but it means you identify with this. And so, this worshiper would come, and, and though this was not an atoning sacrifice, they were still to put their hands on this. And it was a way of saying, God, I identify with this gift to you. This is my gift to you, God, for all that you've done for me. It's not certain whether the priests cut the neck of the animal or the worshiper does. Sometimes you read that, and it looks like the worshiper does, but there's language throughout the Bible that says the priest did that. So we're not quite sure who does that. But but what's certain is the worshiper was very much engaged with it. This wasn't just come, drop off your gift, and leave. He's standing in the doorway of the tent when that animal is sacrificed. He's, he's there watching the blood sprinkled around the altar. He sees the fat, this most precious part of the sacrifice, offered to God. He's part of that worship. He's coming in true sincerity of heart as he's identified with that animal. This was worship. This was recognizing a God who had given them peace. Notice in verses 3 through 5, we see instruction to offer the fat to God. Both blood and fat of the animal belong to God. You can see this all through the Old Testament language. The blood was to be sprinkled at the altar, and the fat was to be burned on the altar as an act of worship. Now, when you look at this, you could read this, and as I read it to you, you saw that the fat came from organs and entrails, which um, was not to be eaten by the priest or the worshiper. And what the fat represented was the most choice of it. Now, again, if you're not raised in livestock world, this might seem somewhat gross to you. <laughs> but in any time we slaughtered cattle, I was very interested, of course, being a Christian, raised, reading the Bible, I was always interested to see that fat that gathered around the the liver and the lungs and the, and the kidneys that were on there. And so as we, as we slaughtered our cattle and prepared them for uh, meat for our family, I, one of the first things I wanted to do was get in there and find that. And it was fascinating because um, when we know that an animal is fed correctly and it's ready for slaughter, the fat turns from a yellow, which a lot of grass-fed cattle have, to when they are on grain, which all of the cattle in the Bible are grain-fed. I know I'm about ready to start an argument with a few people you're talking to an old rancher, you won't win. White turns very, very fat. White, excuse me, fat turns very, very white. And you know that you fed that animal properly and it's ready for slaughter. And that fat that's around there, it's not marbled in the meat like a lot of the other fat. It hangs like a cluster. You know, I know Tom, there's two of us at least have done this probably um, in here. That hangs in a cluster and you can actually just grab it and pull it and it comes loose and it's this, it's this looks like a, a big bunch of grape of fat and it's super sweet and I would always say hey make sure this gets ground into my hamburger <laughs> don't throw this away don't steal this because butchers will do that sometimes and I wanted that in there because it was the sweetest it was the sweetest part and made hamburger people come over to have a hamburger at a house like where'd you get this meat one we didn't have a lot of other stuff in it it was raised on a ranch it was excellent meat but it was sweet because we had them grind all of that fat from those entrails into that hamburger. And it made it great. And so this was the most choice thing. It was the most precious part of the offering. It was to go to the Lord. And notice in verse 5 that this peace offering was done on the altar of the burnt offering here. 
So the same offering where we'll see the sin offering given next week in chapter 4, this offering of worship was to be given at this time. And so the altar that receives God's portion of the peace offering was the same offering that receives the sin offering. Now, what's beautiful about that is because of the sin offering, we now have peace and fellowship with God. And the nation knew that at this time. Look, they may not have understood everything about the Messiah in the name of Jesus, but they knew that there was an atonement given for them, one that would take their place. Here it would be an unblemished lamb, male, um, and, and uh, given to God uh, with no defect in it. That would cover their sins for that year. They knew God would atone their sins from that. This one taught them that because of the atoning work of that animal, they now had peace and fellowship with God. That's comfort, isn't it? Now, when you think about Old Testament believer, they had that for a year. And then they had to repeat it. And they had to repeat it over and over and over. And this is why the book of Hebrews says, year after year this happened, but Christ came once for all. Now, I love to think about this because Jesus is my peace offering, isn't he? God was so pleased with him. He's so glorious to him. He's the sweetest of all the sacrifice. And because of Jesus' offering, we have peace and fellowship with God. And we don't have to do this time and time again. We experience, we have the right, we have the ability to experience the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ in peace and fellowship for not just today, not just tomorrow, but for all of eternity. And that encourages me. So as Christians, think about this. We would say that at the cross of Jesus Christ, not only were our sins paid for by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, there's so many verses that tell us, but at the cross, we found peace and fellowship with God. This is why we sing so much of the cross, don't we? This is why it invades our music so much. Because it's, it's as great, and I don't want to, I'm not lessening the atoning work of our sin, but what I'm focusing on as peace offerings is the result of that atonement is Scott has peace with God forever. <laughs> forever. He's never mad at me. He'll never pour his wrath out on me. He'll never judge me. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, we've got to live that way. See, some of us will go through difficulties and you'll, you'll feel, oh man, I, I've not been living for the Lord. He's going to strike me. Talk to many people who think that way. I thought that way up to 19 years old when I finally got my mind around the love of God and the work of Christ. The finished work of Christ did not just take care of our sins, brothers and sisters. It took care of our peace. It took care of our fellowship for all of eternity. Oh, we must enjoy this. Listen to this verse out of first, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3.16. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace, listen to this, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. I love that verse. Uh, let me read that again. Now may the Lord of peace himself, there's a, he adds a personal pronoun to the statement, the title of the Lord of Peace. He adds a personal pronoun in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Now, brothers and sisters, do we avail, avail ourselves to that kind of peace? I think every one of us would probably say no. There's times we forfeit our peace because of our struggles. But the Bible says right here that the Lord of peace himself, Christ himself, has granted us peace in every circumstance. Every circumstance, God, Scott? My marriage, my finances, COVID? I mean, everything? I'm reading it right out of the text continually grant you peace in every circumstance. See, I think there were Old Testament saints that believed it. I think we'll meet Old Testament saints. Not all the Old Testament saints abandoned God. There were many who walked with God and 
There's many long stretches where Israel walked with God and trusted Him. And there was dear people who believed that God saved them and, and atoned for their sin. And they obeyed God and they received this kind of peace. But you and I, you and I don't bring a lamb every Sunday or every once a year even or any of that. We have to learn to trust Jesus in every circumstance. Every circumstance. See, this is why we have to pray in the mornings when we awake because circumstances are awaiting you, aren't they? As soon as your mind gets conscious, doesn't it? You have circumstances awaiting you. You got doctor's appointments, you got bills to pay, you got children struggling. Something's there, right? They're ready to steal your peace. And yet the Bible says that through the Lord of peace, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate final lamb, has granted us peace in every circumstance. Man, when I read that verse this week, I thought, oh, Lord, why do I give this up sometimes? You say you give me peace in every circumstance. He ends the statement with this, the Lord be with you all. That's how he closes out the letter. What a beautiful statement. But back to our text, notice in verse 5, I've got to keep moving here. In verse 5, there is this offering given that is a soothing aroma to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? See, this fat of this animal was cut up and it was offered God's way, and it became a pleasing sacrifice to God. And as that smoke would go up, it was a realization that it was going up to the heavens. It was, it was lifting up to Him. And he called it a soothing aroma to the Lord. It was pleasing is really a word we can get from the Hebrew here. And this fat from the animal would be there and it would be given. It would be set aside, not for the sacrificer or the, the worshiper or the, or the priest, but for God himself. And again, it's the best portion and it brings, it brings glory to God. The fat also, when you study the way fat works, particularly in livestock, is fat was where they store extra energy as well. And when that animal needs to go through a cold winter or, or a stretch to its time, they'll pull from the resources. And so in a way, it was God, it was the worshiper telling God, I'm giving you the greatest energy, the greatest work that I have. It's an interesting thing to study because so many people say, God, I just don't get the fat. I don't get the fat. I don't get the fat. It has so much uh, flavor to it. it. It moistens the meat. It gives energy to the animal. It was the most worshipful thing of the animal. Now, if you look over at Leviticus chapter 7, we'll get to this. I just want to point something out really quickly. It tells us a little more about this offering. 7 is a chapter that's going to wrap up a lot of the, of the different offerings that are given before he turns to the dedication of the priesthood. But here it tells us that this peace offering, starting in verse 11, was to be presented to the Lord as an offering of thanksgiving. Because you might not have saw that in chapter 3. You where are you getting this thanksgiving? Where are you getting this worshipful? Well, one, you can get it by the context you just study, but chapter 7 gives you. It says, look, it's an offering of thanksgiving. Notice that. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, this is what he's supposed to do with it. And he's supposed to do it with unleavened cakes, as we've studied before on this. The meal was to be shared with the priest. It was to be eaten on the day it was offered. And this particular offering could be eaten the next day. Remember, the, the toning offerings could only be eaten that day. And then everything was taken outside the camp. But the, the peace offering could be eaten that day, the next day. But on the third day, it was to go outside the camp and be burned. Isn't that interesting? The third day. There's a, again, there's connections to Christ all through these offerings that need to be done. That means at the end, Christ was buried outside the gate. He was buried for three days, and it was taken care of. And, so, and he rose from the dead. And so there's real connections to this all the way through this. It's clear that the peace offering was extremely festive when you study, particularly here in Leviticus 7, that this was a festive time. It was a reminder of fellowship with God. I think God, as I said this, I believe God wanted this to be a very joyful, not a somber sacrifice. Um, if you've been around Riverbend or I think good Bible teaching, good worshiping churches, there's joy there. I don't know how long you've been back to maybe an old church that you hadn't been to a long time and you walk in there and it's just kind of dead. And you go like, man, what's going on here? Is there a funeral I missed? Church should be pretty exciting. <laughs> I mean, we should get excited. We should sing and clap and raise our hands or, or bow your head or, or just 
shout to the Lord. See, this is what kind of worship took place during a peace offering. And you see this as it went on. It, was, it went into not one day, it went into the second day. This overflowed into a day of great worship. And you can imagine King Solomon's day, King Hezekiah's day, how long that took and, and probably went on. And I think the text says it went on for seven days as they worshiped the Lord continually offering these things. But what I find interesting as you turn back to chapter 3 is this soothing aroma to the Lord is repeated in, in all the burnt offerings, all the grain offerings, and all the peace offerings. But it's not used of the sin offering or the trespass offering. J.P. Morgan says this. I looked into him when he thought about this. He said the idea is that in the first three offerings, the fire brings out the aroma. But in the last two offerings, it's a sin offering and the trespass offering, the fire destroys it. I thought that was really interesting. See, in an offering to God of worship, of thanksgiving, the fire that takes that up to God as an act of worship. In a sin offering, that fire burns it and t- kills it and removes it and destroys that which would be sin. And see, you can see all of this as you start to study these offerings one after another. Now, the rest of the chapter describes the differences between offerings from the lamb and the goat. You're welcome to to read through that. But again, it gives great detail about the fat again. You'll see it. Um, you'll see the she- to bring an offering of the flock, so it would be a sheep 6 through 11, um, and then 12 through 15, he turns to the goat. But each one of them had unique fat and in unique places. In some of them, there's fat in the tail, and they were to offer that to the Lord. And then he goes on to give some real strict warnings about eating of that fat and that blood. And as noted before, that fat belonged to the Lord. It was the most choice part of that sacrifice. But here we come to the blood. Life was in the blood. But more, even, even as important as that was, the pagan tribes, the world around them, drank blood as an offering to their gods. And so God was very clear that they were not to drink that blood or to consume that in any way. He wanted God's people to live separate lives from the world. God has always wanted his children to live separate lives in the world. We're seeing that in 1 Corinthians, aren't we? Chapter 2. I mean, he is just banging on us over and over not to grab on to even the wisdom of the world, let let alone live like them. And we'll see this Sunday he's going to make this tremendous comparison between those who have the Spirit of God and those who are the natural man that they cannot see what the the Christian sees, they cannot hear what the Christian hears, and they cannot believe what the Christian believes, and they'll never receive what the Christian is going to receive because they're left in their sins. And so God is very clear, don't act like the pagans. I saved you from them. Why would you act like them? See, we have to remind ourselves of that, right? In every generation, as, we, as God gives us new generations of Christians, young people who get saved and grow up, it's one of their battles they fight, don't they? Now, not, not that we older folks and older believers don't fight that as well, but as we get older, we realize, go, man, that was stupid. I got myself all entangled with the world, and there's no joy there. There's no happiness. There's, there's no good things that come from that. And so we try to encourage our younger generation coming up, please don't go down that road. God is not pleased with that. And he really deals with that in this text and over and over in different chapters here, forbidding the drinking of blood, giving the fat to him. Do not act like the idolatry of the pagan world. Verse 17 ends the chapter out, and there he reminds them this is to be a perpetual statute to be passed on from generation. Isn't that interesting? God wanted worship from every generation till he returns. Listen, moms, dads, grandparents in here, our job is to produce worshipers. That's our job. Generation after generation after generation. Now we know the sovereignty of God. He must save them. He, he does that work. That's not our job. But those ones that he entrusts into our care, whether your children or somebody else is down the hall that you go help out with or you lead or teach or wherever it may be, our job is to perpetuate worship. This is what we do. And we need to be a part of that, not against it. This is why I love a church that doesn't complain about worship. You, we, I don't know if you were around during the 70s and 80s and 90s and Christianity, the worship wars that went on. 
Oh my goodness. So devoid of a beautiful peace offering to God. Everybody wanted their own styles and this and that. But you find a church that loves the word of God, they'll trust their leadership. And their leadership will lead them into worship. And that's, that's the goal, perpetuate worship. So moms, dads, grandparents in this room, our job with all that God has given us, the word of God, the spirit of God, is to direct young worshipers to the Lord. Direct them to the Lord. Let him save them. He has to save him. But we are to direct them and be worshipers. That means on Sunday morning, dads, you can't mumble. <laughs> you can't sit there because you, your son is down the road or we're all looking at you mumbling and not engaged in worship. And guess what your son's going to do? He's going to do it twice as worse as you. We teach our children by example, and it has to come from your heart. I'm not telling you to be a hypocrite here. It has to come from our heart to be perpetual worship. And so this last verse is just a fascinating verse. It is a perpetual statue throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall not eat the fat or the blood. So this is to perpetuate. Obey God, do it my way, and worship me. Now, let's look at a couple of quick thoughts as we think Christologically here. Um, number two, Jesus Christ gave the greatest peace offering, which continues forever. Well, our great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, made the greatest peace offering, didn't he, right? When he offered himself as the final lamb. No more lambs, no more bloodshed, he's the final lamb, right? And his peace offering not only paid the penalty of our sin, but listen, he made peace with the believer to his Father forever. The Father in heaven is at peace with us because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb. The hands were laid on Him. It is through Him we worship. And so what a beautiful thing. Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 1 through 5 reminds us of this great blessing. Therefore, having been justified, that means to be declared righteous by faith. So we put our faith in the final Lamb, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. No longer war, no longer enemies, no longer alienated from him. And look what it does. This peace does tremendous things for us. Through whom also we have attained our introduction by faith. This peace brought us faith to God, right? Into this grace in which we now stand. I love that terminology. When you stand as something is what you believe in. This is my position. I stand in grace because of the peace offering of Jesus Christ. I stand there and I have freedom now in Christ. And he goes on to say, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, if that's not enough of standing in grace and exalting in the hope of the glory of God, not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Ah, oh, see, peace and tribulation. Peace in times of difficulties. Peace in times where you don't know always what the Lord is doing. You can go to him knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Listen, being sick is no fun. I'm just getting over being really sick. It's no fun. And, and it's testing of your faith. What are you going to do? Are you going to roll over and die? Or are you going to trust God's taking you through this? Are you going to trust him with your life, knowing that your days are numbered, they're ordained before there were one? And, and sickness is not the only thing. Some of you are going through financial struggles. Some of you are going through relationship issues. Some of you are going through all kinds of difficulties. See, those trials, when you turn to the Prince of Peace, bring you strength. You start to persevere. Lord strengthens you to get through them. And you may not always come through them like you would want to. Boy, I was perfect through that sickness. Yeah, probably not. Because when your body hurts and aches, you're, you lie there and your mind doesn't work right and all kinds of things. But when you get done, you go, Lord, thank you for bringing me through that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the trials you put in this. Thank you for helping me persevere. And perseverance proves character, proven character. That's what it does. So trials bring perseverance. Perseverance exposes character. I think I was telling Bobby the other day, I said, sports don't build character, they reveal character. See, they always tell, they always, you know, go to camp, they always say, well, sports build character. No, they don't, they reveal character. Kids kicking people, throwing things, trying to move social justice movements. 
<laughs> it reveals character, right? There's a bunch of athletes out there that we see on TV like, yeah, see ya. Because it comes out of them, right? So when you're pushed and bumped down on the blocks and somebody gives you an elbow to the back of the head, what's going to come out of you? Your character's going to come out of you. When you're pushed and you're sick and you're not feeling well and you don't know how quite things are going to work out, what kind of character goes? But the, the, when we follow the Prince of Peace, those tribulations bring perseverance. As perseverance brings proven character. Proven character brings hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God, listen to this, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. So the Spirit's right there reminding you of the one who gave you peace as you go through the trial. Boy, that's glorious. Spurgeon said this, he said, a sense of perfect peace with God is the grandest thing in all the world with which to travel through life. Let me read that again. A sense of perfect peace with God is the grandest thing in all of the world with which to travel through this life. Travel with God's peace. Travel with what he's doing. He gives us peace that passes all understanding. Christ brings us into beautiful relationships of unity through his peace. Look with me at Ephesians chapter, and I got a couple here, but I'm running out of time. Um, Colossians, we'll go to Colossians. We'll skip one, go to Colossians. The other one is Ephesians 2, 13 through 22. You can look at that. That's a beautiful text as well. But let me just jump to the Colossians one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. You know, the peace offering in Israel was really to bring unity to the nation. There was no greater unity that you can have as when you worship together. And so the peace offering reminded this nation of the graciousness and, and uh, the kindness of God to bring them out of slavery, to make them his people, to set them apart from all of the world's tribes and peoples. It was to remind them of that, that they as a unit, as a group of people, belong to God. See, that's what's unique about Christianity. We were brought out... We were not a people. Peter says this as he quotes the Old Testament. We once were not a people, and he made us his people. We once had not mercy, and now we've received mercy. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Everything the Father is, Jesus is. This is a great verse on the deity of Jesus. And through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. His blood, Christ's blood, brought peace for throughout all of the universe and throughout all of the heavens. It's an amazing thing. Look at verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Yuck, huh? That's our life before salvation. Yet he has now reconciled you to uh, in his, you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed, if indeed you continue in faith firmly established and steadfast. That means, look, I've, I've, I hold on to the hope of the gospel, right? Not moved away from the hope of the gospel. It's the mark of a Christian. It brings us into unity. It takes all of us who are far off the Ephesian passage talks about taking two groups of people, right? You had Jews and pagans, Jews and Gentiles. And he takes two drastically different groups of people. And he makes them one. And so in our congregation, we have Jews who are believers here. We have Gentiles. And then we have people from all different walks of life, economically, uh, ethnically. Uh, just diversity. He brings us all into unity. And we have peace together. Third, real quickly here. The followers of Christ are motivated by the peace of God. You know, most of Pauline, the Pauline epistles all start with the phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's just an opening. It's just the way he talks. Wouldn't it be nice to talk that way? Come and see some, hey, grace and peace to you, brother. We should probably do that. Often I'm writing missionaries. I usually start with something like that because I'm so encouraged by them. I want them to have grace and peace in their ministry. But maybe we should say that more often to each other. Paul always greeted. I would imagine in the early churches he has not seen them and he arrives in Ephesus or, or Philippi or somewhere. That was the greeting they publicly gave to each other. I'm a person of grace and I've received the peace of God. How are you doing? <laughs> see, they thought that way. Should we? But unlike the false worshipers of the Old Testament, we offer up a sacrifice of praise. 
There were false worshipers. When we go on to study as we work our way in the Old Testament, we'll see where they fell away from this. In fact, God abhors their sacrifice. I don't have time to take you to Amos where he deals with this. In Amos, he says, I abhorred your peace offering. Because you're not here to worship me. You've burned your babies in Baal, and then you've come to temple. Abhor that. I want nothing to do with that. See, that's what happened. But that shouldn't be us, right? We enjoy peace. And so look at, with me at Hebrews chapter 13. There's a change in us. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Want to lose your peace? Get hooked up on a bunch of stuff that are not a part of the grace of God. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by food. <laughs> not by food, some kind of offering to God. Don't eat this, don't touch that, don't do this, all those things, right? Through which there, which, to which those who are so occupied were never benefited. Isn't that interesting? He's pointing out people who tried to come to God, rich young rulers, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Look, we've done all of this from our youth. He goes, you're all occupied with this and you never received peace. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach these Hebrew Christians here. He says in verse 10, look at this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We got a different altar. We got an altar with the blood of Christ spilled on it. We got an altar with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that was offered up for us. For the bodies of those animals whose blood, verse 11, is brought into the holy place by the high priest and offered for sin are burned up outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. I mean, this is just a picture, right? After third day, take it out, burn it up outside. This is Jesus. This is what happened. He suffered outside the gate. He was not in where, where the religious were and where all the mighty works were done. He was set aside as an offering for sin. And then he says this, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us... Go out to him outside the camp. Leave your views. Leave what you think God is pleased with and obey him. Go to him and live his way is the idea here. Bearing his reproach, learning, realizing what Christ did for us. And then verse 14, for here we do not have a lasting city. I mean, it's the, the, Jerusalem is still that area. I mean, you know how... The Jews worship it, the Arabs worship it, everybody worships that area. But we're seeking a city which is to come. And then result of this, with all of that, listen to this. Look what he does with this, verse 15. Through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, that thanksgiving in his name. Peace offering. Right there. This is what we do, brothers and sisters. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 21 through 24 says this, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now that may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit, soul, body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and will also bring it to pass. The God of peace will do this. Colossians chapter 3, 14 through 15, beyond all things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Does it have rule? Does it sit on the throne? Does peace with God, that my sins are forgiven, that I live for him now, does that reside on my heart? See, it'll start to push all those other idols and all those throne robbers off there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, listen to this, pursue, pursue peace with all men. This is the result of, of, of one who offers the uh, sacrifice of peace. We pursue peace with all men and the, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you're not at peace with somebody, pursue it. The king of peace, the, the prince of peace, laid down his life as the final offering for peace for us. 
pursue peace. We should be peacemakers, brothers and sisters. That's what we do. We should pursue peace constantly in our marriages, in our homes, in our businesses, and particularly in the church. James 3.18 says this, And the seed, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to sow the fruit of righteousness? Seek peace. Peace through Jesus. Not just peace, hey, we're going to get along. <laughs> peace in the relationship in Christ. Jesus Christ forgave your sins. Forgive that other one. Jesus warned people. He said, "Those, if you do not forgive other sins, my Father in heaven will not forgive yours. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 tells us to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ, just as God in, God in Christ forgave us. See, that's we pursue peace. When's the last time, someone and I were just talking about this week, where you turned to someone and you said, will you forgive me for? And list what you're asking your forgiveness for. See, one of the things we deal with all the time is people never resolve conflict. They just move on. Well, nobody really won that fight. We got over it. Some new problem came along and we took on that. See, that's, that's, not, that's not a peace offering. That, that's actually rejecting the work of Jesus Christ to bring reconciliation to your issue. Will you forgive me for and ask their forgiveness. See, you want peace? You have to pursue it. Hebrews said to pursue peace. Pursue that. 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. <laughs> you want to be found by God in peace or arguing all the time? We pursue peace, brothers and sisters. doesn't mean we compromise. The Bible never telling you to compromise on truth. You have to speak the truth in love. And you have to do it over and over at times, still loving, still not being agitated, still not fighting, but learning to speak the truth in love. And God grants peace. Jude begins his epistle this way. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. That's what God wants us. Jesus, the night before his death, said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Boy, there's a peace that passes all understanding. Are you a peacemaker? Do you see Jesus Christ as the ultimate offering of the peace, a lamb of peace, and it causes you to live for him? I close with this. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder. We find ourselves deep in the middle of the book of law. And we find a nation learning how to approach you. We see your gracious mercy on them. And yet it's all pointed to something even greater. And here we are, New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christians, under this beautiful new covenant of the blood of Christ. We have peace totally available to us, 24-7, 365 days a year, for all of our eternity through Jesus Christ, and we're not at peace with others. Or we tempt you by trying, trying to come to you some other way, offer up dead works. Lord, help us live like the children of the Prince of Peace. And Lord, help us to resolve conflict. Help us to pursue peace with one another. Lord, this is all acts of worship. This is a people who worship you and love you. Lord, we'll need to practice. We'll, we won't be perfect at this. We thank you for your tender kindness and your forgiveness and your patience with us. But Lord, let us not abuse your grace. Let us practice and let us follow in the steps of the greatest peacemaker ever. Lord, help us, Lord. We need your help to do this. 
Lord, I finally just finished this prayer. Remember those who are not well tonight, Lord. We pray you would strengthen them, not in our church, but others around the area, Lord, who are struggling. Lord, please heal their bodies. Return them back to church and let them offer up a beautiful offering of peace to the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.